John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be, should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Uh, if you were wondering why I'm overdressed for the occasion, I have a work event at 7 o'clock that I'm speaking at in Anaheim. So I'm going straight from here to there. That's why I look like a mutual fund salesman. The good news is my sermon's only 10 minutes long. It's not. It's not. Let me pray for us. You guys are like, I hope he's preaching on Christmas. <laughs> Heavenly Father, I thank you, God. Um, for these words that you have spoken. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would empower me to speak your truth. I ask the Holy Spirit would soften our hearts and open our eyes that we might look and see the love that you have for us the way in which you have loved us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, this thing's not coming up. It's okay. <clears throat> you guys know who Mr. Rogers is, right? Yes? Okay, good. Uh, Mr. Rogers is famous for saying that uh, love is at the root of everything. And that might sound like wishful thinking. It might sound like hippie theology. Uh, but if you know anything about Mr. Rogers, uh, he, he grew up and experienced like extreme amounts of bullying. He grew up in a time where he was acutely aware of, of the, uh, the audacious acts of World War II, of the Vietnam War. And yet this TV personality who was also a Presbyterian minister decided that love was at the root of everything. And he didn't come up to that conclusion on his own. He came up to that conclusion by reading these scriptures. He looked and he saw and he believed. And the thing is, it's not just Mr. Rogers that believes that. We all want to believe that love is all you need, that love wins, that love heals, that love is at the center of the universe. In the Trinitarian God of the scriptures, of John 3.16 that we just read, is our best hope for those things to be true. I mean, if you think about it, if you uh, approach the world as an as a, as a, uh, atheist, you have no claim to say that love is at the center of everything. You can't even say that there is such a thing as love. At the center of all creation for the atheist is simply survival of the fittest. Nothing more than survival of the fittest. 
If you're of a, a Greek or Hindu background or Near Eastern religions, you would conclude that creation is a byproduct of the egocentric uh, attitude of the god or gods. We are a byproduct of either the passions of war or love, according to their creation stories. And of course, if you subscribe to Islam, then all of creation is here because of power and submission. The God of Islam created everything to show his ultimate power and for us to know him and be in his graces. It's about us surrendering and submitting to that power. But in the Trinity, we actually can have hope that love is at the center of everything because Trinitarian theology teaches us that before everything, there was God in three persons in perfect community and unity with one another, loving each other. And there was nothing corrupt or self-ambitious about this love. Think about that. For all of history, no, actually that transcends history. Always, there has always been, and there always will be, at some place, in some way, perfect, undefiled, everlasting love. And the scriptures tell us that it is out of this love, that it's an overflow of this love that God created. This is the love that we long for the love that we speak of when we say we want to believe that love is at the center of the universe. And so while other religions, other worldviews can claim that God loves and that he is loving, only with Trinitarian theology can you say that God is love. Here's how uh, Jared Wilson says it. He says, think about it. A solitary God cannot be love. He may learn to love, he may yearn to love, but he cannot in himself be love since love requires an object. Real love requires relationship. In the doctrine of the Trinity, we finally see how love is part of the fabric of creation. It's essential to the eternal need-nothing creator. From eternity past, the Father and the Son and the Spirit have been in community in relationship. They have loved each other. That love relationship is bound up in every nature of God himself. If God were not a trinity, but merely a solitary divinity, he could neither be love nor be God. You see, the Trinitarian God of Christianity answers our oldest and deepest desires. It's, it lets us know that our longing to love and be loved can be answered by love. It tells us, it assures us that you're not an accident, that you're not some byproduct of an undignified evolutionary process, that you weren't created or here to submit, suffer, and die. As a matter of fact, creation itself is an act of love. This is a point that Makata Fujimura says in his book, A Theology of Making. I love what he says here. Listen to this. The Genesis account is not just about the idea of creation, 
but about the actual process of the incarnation of God's love to create the universe. I like to think, and many Hebraic scholars attest, that God the creator sang the creation into being. The creation is more about poetic utterances of love rather than about the industrial efficiency, a mechanism for being, as many Western commentators may assume. I love the way he looks at this. He's essentially like, when we look at the creation story, we look at it with like industrialized eyes. We're like, well, what happened first and what happened next and what was there and what was the process and how long did it take? And he's like, the way it would have been read and how God tells the story is that God sang this love song and that's creation. Isn't that beautiful? And then the scriptures and Makata goes on to say that he then does this thing when he makes us in which he implies salem. And this word salem is where we get the idea of imago dei or image bearer. In other words, God stamps his face onto our hearts, which is like saying our deep desire for love is our desire to know the face of God. Now, this is true, and I believe that it is. Why don't we experience this on a daily basis? Why aren't our lives marked by the realization that we are God's experience in, in living in God's love song? I think it's because we are really bad at loving. We're not very good at it. If you notice the verses that we just read, it actually mentions love twice. It mentions the love of God, but then look again at verse 19. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works shall be exposed. When I say we're bad at love, I don't mean that we don't love. We are created by God to love. It is in our nature to love. We can't help but do the thing that we are created to do. When I say we're bad at love, I mean that we love the wrong things in the wrong ways and at the wrong time. We have what Augustine calls disordered loves. You see, Augustine believed that as children, we have this desire to grow up and be happy. Like no child is like, I hope I grow up and I'm miserable my entire life. And yet Augustine recognizes that most of us live lives marked by conflict, frustration, and unfulfilled longings. That's what Augustine would say. And he wanted to know why, and his conclusion is that we have these disordered loves. See, Augustine believed that at the heart of every single one of us, for you to be able to understand a human being, you would have to know what they loved. What defines a person isn't their accomplishments, their hopes, their dreams, not even what they say they believe, Rather, the thing in which drives a human being is what that person loves. That's what Augustine would say. He would also say that our loves 
is at the root of human virtue. So if you are a courageous person, Augustine would say you're courageous because your love for your neighbor's well-being outweighs your love for your own personal safety. If you're an honest person, your love for truth outweighs your love for your own personal reputation or situation. He would say that a person who is generous loves others more than they love their own creaturely comforts. Augustine would also say that sin is ultimately a lack of love for God or others. Here's how he said it. The essence of sin is disordered love. The essence of all of our sin starts at the root with disordered loves. You see, we're bad at love because we don't know what to love. uh, Disordered loves means that we love less important things more and more important things less. And this is what James chapter 4 is getting at when he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You see, Each one of us would say we want to love our spouses well, our friends well, our neighbors well, our family well. But often the love of something else gets in the way of that. Someone might lie about something they've done or their sins because in that moment, Like I said, they love their reputation or their situation more than they love their friend, neighbor, or spouse. It's the love of self that causes pride, that gets us angry and defensive when we're feeling disrespected or dismissed. It's a love for our own time and energy and attention that gets us frustrated when somebody challenges our schedule, disrupts our plans. And some of you might be like, but I also hate my sin. Like I hate losing my cool. I hate getting frustrated in those moments. And I think it's important to recognize the thing that we hate is the fruit that our disordered loves produce. I, uh, I get mixed up as what I've preached and what I've spoken about in in, uh, the podcast. So if I've said this in a previous sermon in the last year, I apologize. I have no idea whether I have or have not. But uh, a few months ago, I was like, I had to, I had a meeting at like, I don't know, nine o'clock or something. And I was like, okay, I'm going to get to the office two hours early. I'm going to prepare for this meeting. And I was running even earlier than that. And so I had time to stop off and get a cup of coffee. And I get in there and like my coffee's taking like five minutes, you know, and I start to get frustrated. And uh, I'm not saying anything because I'm not like that much of a jerk. I'm not like Brian. I'm just kidding. You would never Truly, he would never actually. Um, but I am I'm agitated. 
And I look down and I notice that her hand is shaking. And I look at her and like this young lady just looks like she's barely keeping it together. And it reminded me of my little sister. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I think most of you do. My sister Jay passed away about four years ago now. And when she was uh, struggling with depression and suicide, she did this courageous thing. She decided to get a job where she would interact with other people because she recognized that depression and anxiety makes you isolate. And sometimes that worked really well. Like she'd come home from work and she had a great day. But other times she'd come home and she'd give me a call and she was like bawling her eyes out because of the way people treated her. And I mean, there were days, like people who are struggling with that, sometimes they wake up in the morning and dying seems easier than getting up and going to work. And I don't know that barista. I don't know what she's going through, but maybe she was having one of those mornings. And here I am, like, loving my time and my schedule and my expectation and treating her like a robotic transaction when the God, love God of the universe perhaps put me in her way to slow down and ask her about her day? I also get worried that we have this tendency to raise our kids to adopt the sins of their parents. You know, when our kids act poorly, when they misbehave, when they're um, being stubborn, like in that moment, we have to recognize that our children are dealing with the same thing that we're dealing with, disordered loves. And God has graciously given these kids to us to disciple, to help them rearrange their loves. But in that moment, we often take the easy way out. It's like, okay, here's your toy, here's your way, here's a screen, here's a snack, just stop. Let me be back on my phone, back in this conversation, back to a moment of peace. You see, we love our time, our energy, our attention more than this opportunity. And it's like, God's like, man, I've given you these kids to disciple them, to slow down and help them rearrange their disordered loves. And if we don't do that, if we miss that opportunity, you know, I don't want them to grow up like Augustine to say that they live unsatisfied lives full of conflict and longing. See, the love of man is self-ambitious. It takes where the love of God gives away. I mean, just listen to 1 Corinthians 13. It's beautifully written. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not re rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things endures all things. You guys see how it's like outward facing. And there's like this repeated spiral effect that I think that happens. Like the more we pour out our love into others, 
we don't get empty, but rather we get filled up. The more we better know the love of God. That's what the scriptures mean to say to love God and to love neighbor. I, uh, Chris and I used to um, be college group leaders. And uh, I remember this one time, this college group kid came up to me and he was like, oh man, I'm dating this girl and like, I'm in love, which is a weird thing to hear a college group student say. But uh, I was like, really tell me about that. And I remember very specifically, he's like, oh man, like I love the way she makes me feel. I love that she's into all the things I'm into. I love that she wants to hang out when I want to hang out, but she gives me space when I want to have space. Like I love how easy it is to be with this girl. And I was like, dude, you're in love with yourself. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was like this self-ambitious love. But if we're honest, if we're honest, we all struggle with that. We're all a little too in love with ourselves and not enough loving God and loving neighbor. And before we move on to the third point, which is our last point of the first 10 points, I want to give some practical advice. I want like a takeaway. And it's this. It's that one way that we can reorient our hearts to love God is through our habits. Because our habits, Augustine believed this as well, that our habits ultimately shape the thing in which we love. Our daily rituals and our habits are the thing that point our heart towards something. I was at a, a retreat recently and like there was this kid. When I first got there, all of the leaders were like, that kid right there, like, you know, he, he's, a, he's a good looking dude. Like he's really popular at school. He's super athletic and he's like hardly ever, you know, around cause he's just distracted by being like a popular high school kid. He was like, you know, one of us, Chris, <laughs> not even close. Um, Cammy's laughing a little too hard. <laughs> Come on now, Alyssa married up. So this kid on Sunday walks up to me and he's like, I am, he's like, I am just like lit up for the Lord. Like, I I have these new affections for God and I don't want things to change when I get home. Like, I don't want come Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday for me to just be right back to the normal daily routine. Like, what can I do? And uh, I asked him, tell me about like how you've been spending your time up here. And he goes through the rat, like he's like, well, this morning I woke up and like I spent time in God's word and then I prayed and then we went on a hike. We spent time in God's creation and then we went to chapel and then afterwards I spent time with the guys and we like dissected the verses that we went through. And do you see like the thing that got this guy on fire for the Lord wasn't the preaching, I promise you that. What it was is like this microcosm of new rhythms, of new practices in his life that was reshaping his heart to love God. And the thing is, is every single one of us has daily practices. And whether they're intentional or not is one thing, but they are definitely without a doubt shaping the thing in which we love. In other words, to wake up in the morning and to practice spending time in God's word and in prayer and meditation, that's going to shape your life for one thing. But you know what else is a spiritual heart-shaping practice? To wake up in the morning and scroll social media check Amazon Prime to check out our email for all of the sales and discounts that were sent to us, 
Like that is a rhythm and a practice that is shaping our heart to love something else. And we need to decide for ourselves. We need to be intentional about the practices that we implement into our daily lives if we want to reorient our disordered loves. Does that make sense? You know, the verses that I read, 1 Corinthians 13, they are both comforting and confronting. They're comforting in that you read them and you're like, man, I I want that. Like, I want to be that kind of person. But they're also confronting because I'm not. I'm not that kind of person. What can we do about that? Look at verse 21 again. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What is this light? This light is ultimately found back at verse 16. So John 3.16 is arguably the most popular verse in like all the world. Like even if you're not a Christian, you probably, if you don't know the verse by heart, you know John 3.16, you know what I mean? You've seen it on like a football player's face. You've seen it on a car bumper sticker. You've seen it on the bottom of like Forever 21 bags. It's everywhere. And the thing is, I think that it's often also the most, one of the most misunderstood verses in all of the scriptures. And I think there's two reasons why it's misunderstood. The first is not the way that it's translated. It's actually translated really well when it says, for God so loved the world. It's not so much the way that it's translated. It's the way in which we read it with hyper-individualistic, self-centered Western eyes. Because when we read, for God so loved the world, A lot of people hear that as like, God so loved the world. You know, like my daughter Evangeline, she loves her stuffed animals because she finds her stuffed animals so lovable. And so when we read it, we think, man, the world was just so lovable. But the object, or I should say the focus, isn't so much how lovable the world is so much as how God has loved an unloving world. And actually, the CSB, I think, translates it in a way that helps us better capture this reality. And so if you look, I've got it here. Our ASV, the NIV, many of the other ones says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But the CSB translates translates it like this, for God loved the world In this way, he gave his one and only son. This is how God loved the world. And so the way we read that translation is the first challenge that I think we have in better understanding this verse. The second challenge is the chapter break. Most of us probably realize that the chapter breaks that we have in our Bibles, they are put there by scholars to help us sort of find themes and and break up the scriptures. But sometimes, and I think for John's 3.16 specifically, the chapter break actually gets in the way because we often read John 3.16 on its own like it's the beginning of a new idea. But I mean, the first word is for, which is an indication that it's the continuation of a thought process, right? And most of our Bibles, you guys can probably see mine right here, has this chapter break, for, for God so loved the world. But for us to understand this verse, we have to understand what came before it. And what comes before it is this conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus. 
Nicodemus is asking about the kingdom of God to a degree. He recognizes that Jesus is from God. And Jesus tells him that a man cannot know the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And Nicodemus is confused by this statement. He's like, how can a man be born again? And I've heard some guys talk about it being like this sarcastic response that Nicodemus has. Maybe some of that was there, but it's also a really honest and a deep question. It's a loaded question. How can a man be born again? How can a man's heart be truly changed? How can a person be put to death his old ways? How can a person finally kill habitual sin that has plagued him for so long? How can we find the power to rearrange our loves so that we can love God and love our neighbors? That's what Nicodemus is asking. And Jesus' response is, Wild. Here's what he does. John uh, chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descends, descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Here's the key. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What on earth is Jesus talking about? So back in Numbers chapter 21, there's this really weird story. And essentially, Jesus, uh, God's people have escaped from Egypt. We all know the story. They were enslaved. Uh, a bunch of plagues happened. People died. Jesus, uh, God says, let, or Moses says, let my people go. There's like a Mad Max chase in the desert. They get caught up in front of a, a, a big body of water. God splits the water in half. The Israelites get through. Uh, uh, Pharaoh's people end up drowning, and they're off in the wilderness, except their journey to the promised land takes a lot longer, and it's a lot harder. And they start complaining. And any of us who's ever taken kids out on a long hike know what this sounds like. Like they're mad because it's hot, and they're sick of the food, and there's not enough water, and they're whining and complaining to God. They have forgotten the promises, the covenant that God has made with them. They are questioning his plans and his provisions. And God sends a curse. All these snakes come into their uh, uh, tents and they start biting people. And people are getting sick and they're dying. And so they realize how they've been with God and they go to Moses and they're like, we messed up. Like, tell God that we are sorry. And and so God tells Moses to uh, create a statue, a bronze serpent. He wants them to create a statue that looks like the curse that he sent them. And he has them put it on a pole. And he tells them, if you get bit by the snake, all you have to do is look. Just look at the serpent and you will be healed. And that's it. That's the story. Nine verses long, and it just ends. And it's like kind of weird out of context, right? But now Jesus is doing something with that. Jesus is like, I am that bronze serpent. I am the curse. He who knew no sin became sin for us. God, the one who loved perfectly, 
gets up on a cross and knew no sin becomes sin. And what Jesus is saying is that all you have to do is look. Look at me and you will be reconciled with God. Look up at Jesus on the cross and see the way in which God has loved you. And the thing is, when we get a glimpse, when we get just a glimpse of the way God has loved us, it gives us the power to rearrange our loves, to love God and love others. I think maybe for some of us, we haven't looked. We haven't looked and saw Jesus become a curse for us in a long time. Maybe for others, we've never looked and seen. But for all of us, man, let's look up. Let's look to Jesus on the cross see his loving, covenantal, reconcilable work that he has done. Let's look with spiritually opened eyes so that our hearts would be softened and that we would love God and love others. You see, Mr. Rogers was right. He looked and he saw Jesus' love for him, what he had done, and he determined that at the root of everything is love. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.